0: Hello, this is Bob Edwards, and I'm here with my wife Helga. For International Women's Day, we have decided to take a break from our study of the book of Genesis to highlight the manner in which a popular English translation of the Bible confuses patriarchy, the rule of men, with the will of God. The English translation we will be examining is the English Standard Version, or ESV, Study Bible. As the old saying goes, seeing is believing. While this may often be accurate, Christian psychologist Dr. David Myers points out that sometimes the opposite is true. Believing becomes seeing. In other words, a person's beliefs, assumptions, and expectations can greatly influence that person's perception of reality. For example, someone who believes that men were meant to exercise authority over women may perceive the Bible to be teaching this when the actual text says nothing of the sort. Unfortunately, many examples of this distortion of reality can be found in the ESV Study Bible. The commentary throughout this translation portrays the rule of men as the will of God. At times, headings are added to the text of the ESV to reinforce this perception. In some instances, Actual words and phrases that do not appear in the Bible's original languages are added to the text by the translators. Additionally, some verses contain English words that do not accurately reflect the meaning of their Hebrew or Greek counterparts. In each case, the changes made by the translators of the ESV Study Bible project a patriarchal worldview onto the text, making it appear that male authority is actually God's design. Just some of the many passages that demonstrate this patriarchal bias include Genesis 3:16, Ephesians 5:22, Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5, and Romans chapter 16 verse 7. The commentary on Genesis 3:16 found in the ESV Study Bible introduces patriarchal ideas that cannot be found in our oldest Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of the text. A commentary is an author's interpretation of Bible passages. It is not to be confused with the Bible itself. This commentary in the ESV study Bible is reinforced by a new English translation of the passage that cannot be found in any other English Bible. The new translation reads as follows, quote, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the majority of other English Bible translations, the text reads as follows. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. At first glance, the differences may appear subtle. The resulting change in meaning, however, is profound. In English translations that accurately reflect the meaning of our oldest available Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, Eve will either turn towards or have a desire for her husband, and sadly he will rule over her. This state of affairs can accurately be interpreted as a direct result of humanity's first sin. In other words, because Adam and Eve turned away from God, men will now seek to dominate the women who turn towards or desire to be with them. A masculine claim to authority over women is not portrayed as God's design. Rather, it is depicted as a tragic outcome of humanity's fall. The ESV Study Bible, however, cannot be interpreted in this way. Masculine authority is portrayed as God's will and Eve is depicted as rebelling against God's design, evidenced by her desire, which is allegedly contrary to her husband's leadership. To reinforce a patriarchal interpretation of this mistranslated text, the ESV Study Bible supplies the following commentary, quote, These words from the Lord, found in Genesis 3:16 indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. This especially takes the form of conflicting desire on the part of the wife and domineering rule on the part of the husband. The Hebrew term here translated desire, Teshuka, is rarely found in the Old Testament. But it appears again in Genesis 4.7, in a statement that closely parallels 3.16. That is where the Lord says to Cain, just before Cain's murder of his brother, that sin's desire is contrary to you, i.e. to master Cain, and that Cain must rule over it which he immediately fails to do by murdering his brother, as seen in Genesis 4.8. Similarly, the ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God will have disastrous consequences for their relationship. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. Unquote. To begin, this commentary wrongly assumes that God ordained a patriarchal relationship in marriage from the onset of creation. The term complementarian used by the ESV commentators is merely a euphemism for patriarchy. In the Hebrew or Greek biblical text of Genesis, there is no mention whatsoever of any gender based hierarchy until after humanity's first sin. In other words, there is no textual support for the notion that male authority was God's plan. This notion was introduced by patriarchal theologians in the 3rd and 4th centuries AD. Secondly, in this patriarchal twist on the passage, Eve is literally compared to sin, a threat to God's design, a threat that Adam must now counter through an assertion of masculine authority. A blog article that shares a similar perspective reads as follows Eve will try to usurp her husband's role as head, but God is requiring Adam to keep her from doing so. There are a number of serious difficulties with this patriarchal reading of the text. To begin, the Hebrew word for desire, teshuka, does not carry the meaning of seeking to usurp anyone's authority. When used in Genesis 4-7, sin desires Cain. It is metaphorically compared to a predator lying in wait for its prey. Though the commentators of the ESV study Bible fail to supply it, there is another instance of the Hebrew word Teshuka in the Old Testament. It is found in the Song of Solomon, and it reads as follows, I belong to my beloved, and his desire, Teshuka is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside, and let us spend the night in the villages. That's found in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. In this passage, a man's desire is for, not contrary to, his beloved. Simply put, Teshuka means to have a desire for something or someone. The nature of the desire, be it healthy or otherwise, is determined by context. The Greek translation of Genesis 3.16 found in the Septuagint, a Greek text written by 70 Jewish scholars in the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC, carries a similar meaning. In place of Teshuka, it uses the Greek word apostrophe. This word literally means to turn towards someone or something, often for refuge. The Greek Septuagint reinforces this meaning with the use of the preposition pros which literally means to turn towards someone or something, often with the notion of clinging closely. The following three examples of apostrophe in ancient Greek literature serve to demonstrate its common meaning. Example 1. Writing in the first century AD, historian Flavius Josephus used this word to mean turning towards someone for deliverance. Here is an English translation of Josephus' account. But still, because there appeared to be no other way whither they could turn themselves for deliverance, apostrophe, they made haste the same way with the soldiers and went to Claudius. In context, Roman senators who were previously opposed to the emperor Claudius were deserted by the Roman army. With no other course available to them, they turned to Claudius for leniency, reaffirming their allegiance. Example number two. Born in the second century AD, a Greek philosopher named Philostratus used apostrophe in a similar manner. In this account, servants of a man named Herodus turned to the people of Athens as a haven. Quote, Since I have mentioned the will of Atticus, I must also record the reasons why Herodus offended the Athenians. The terms of the will were as I have stated, and Atticus drew it up by the advice of his freedmen, who since they saw that Herodus was by nature prone to deal harshly with his freedmen and slaves, tried in this way to prepare a haven for themselves, apostrophe, among the people of Athens, by appearing responsible for the legacy." Unquote. In context, expecting to be treated harshly by Herodus. Upon the death of his father Atticus, household servants turned towards, or to, the people of Athens for refuge. The use of apostrophe to mean turning towards someone for refuge or deliverance has a very long history. In the 5th century BC, a historian named Herodotus used this word to explain that the Greeks had no one to turn to for water, but the god they called Zeus. This is example number three, Quote, Greek land is watered by rain, but not by river water like theirs. They said that one day the Greeks would be let down by what they counted on and miserably starve, meaning that if heaven send no rain for the Greeks and afflict them with drought, the Greeks will be overtaken by famine. There is no other source of water for them. In other words, no one else to turn to "'Apostrophe except Zeus alone.'" Unquote. In all of these examples from ancient Greek literature, "'apostrophe' is used to mean turning toward someone for help or refuge. As in the Song of Solomon, Eve desires or turns towards the person she loves. Though 4th century patriarchal theologians like St. Augustine equated Eve with sin, the Bible never does this, Ever. Genesis 3.16, accurately understood from Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, portrays Adam's ruling over his wife as a direct consequence of human sin. Rather than accurately reflecting this biblical truth, the ESV Study Bible translation misrepresents Eve's desire as somehow contrary to Adam's rule. She is made to appear resistant to what is portrayed as Adam's divinely ordained authority. In other words, a tragic consequence of humanity's sinful choice is wrongly portrayed as God's design.
1: A second example of the ESV Study Bible's patriarchal bias can be found in the commentary and textual mistranslation of Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul's alleged command in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands forms the foundation of the complementarian view that husbands must exercise authority over their wives in Christian marriage. To begin, the ESV translators add a heading between Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. They also add an additional command, submit, to the text of verse 22, and render this as a complete sentence that is able to stand on its own. In Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, there is no heading between Ephesians 5 verse 21 and 22. In our earliest available manuscripts, Ephesians 5 verse 22 does not contain the imperative verb submit directed exclusively to wives, and verse 22 cannot grammatically stand as a separate sentence. The only mention of submitting in these two verses occurs in Ephesians 5 verse 21 which is accurately translated as follows, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. This adverbial phrase modifies the earlier command in Ephesians 5.18, which reads, Be not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, all followers of Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit will demonstrate this by submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. It is essential to note that the Greek word for submitting is written in the masculine plural, which means that the group of people who will be submissive one to another must include men. Contrary to an accurate Greek understanding of the passage, the ESV Study Bible commentators claim that Ephesians 5 verse 21 carries the following meaning, quote, Submitting to others according to the authority and order established by God. The first example of general submission is illustrated as Paul exhorts wives to submit to their husbands. Husbands, on the other hand, are not told to submit to their wives but to love them. End of quote. In other words, the commentators claim that submission is meant to be hierarchical and not mutual at all. Wives and husbands is the heading supplied by the ESV translators. It does not appear in the Greek New Testament and it appears to separate verses 21 and 22 into two separate commands. The ESV then adds the additional verb submit to verse 22 making it appear to be a separate command directing wives to unilaterally submit to their husbands. While the ESV commentary claims that husbands do not submit to wives, In the Greek of Ephesians 5.21, husbands are most certainly included in the one-to-another mutual submission that all Christians will demonstrate. The notion that submitting one-to-another means the unilateral submission of women to men in marriage is completely absent from the Greek New Testament. This idea is projected onto the text by the patriarchal translators of the ESV Study Bible. As Dr. David Myers has indicated, sometimes believing becomes seeing. Men who believe in male authority actually change the text of Ephesians chapter 5.22 to confirm their worldview. Additionally, the ESV Study Bible adds the word should to Ephesians 5.24. This additional word of obligation is not present in any Greek manuscripts of this passage. The Apostle Paul addresses the culture of his day, acknowledging that wives were already submissive to their husbands in first century Roman, Jewish, and Greek contexts. To this pre-existing scenario, Paul adds the additional command that husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the Church. Jesus demonstrated a servant-like love when he died on the cross to atone for humanity's sin. Every Christian is called to love as Christ has loved us as we see in John 13:35. The apostle Paul teaches the same principle of mutual servanthood for all Christians in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8. Quote, "Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave" and being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." In this passage, Jesus lays aside any claim to divine authority, humbling himself in love for the benefit of the Church. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are told to imitate Christ's example. Loving and submitting one to another go hand in hand. They are not separate, gender-based commands. In its original language and cultural context, how might we understand the Apostle Paul's overall message in Ephesians 5, verses 18-28? to 28? Be filled with the Spirit, submitting one to another, just as wives do to husbands, and just as the Church does to Christ. Husbands, you ought also to love and serve your wives just as christ loved and served the church giving his life for her on the cross more information on changes made to ephesians chapter 5 by patriarchal translators can be found in our equality workbook freedom in christ from the oppression of patriarchy sadly the commentators and translators of the esv study bible also project their own patriarchal worldview on to the text of Titus chapter 2 verses 3 to 5. The ESV Study Bible translates the passage in the following manner: Quote, "Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God" may not be reviled." The ESV Study Bible then supplies the following commentary, quote, Working at home does not prohibit working outside the home, but it does indicate that Paul expects wives to carry the primary responsibility for the day-to-day care of their homes and children. Yet this is to be done while being submissive to their own husbands, supporting their husbands' leadership role in the family. See notes on Ephesians 5.22, end of quote. To begin with, it is important to note that the ESV Study Bible commentators use their own patriarchal misperception of Ephesians 5.22, which we have just examined, to support yet another patriarchal misperception concerning Titus 2 verses 3 to 5. In other words, they use one error to support another, In the Greek language found in Titus, young women are not told that they should be working at home. Rather, they are described in the Greek text as oikurgis, household stewards. Women in this culture were already household stewards by default. The passage does not prescribe such a role. Instead, it tells women who were already functioning as household stewards how to do this in a Christ-like manner. They are instructed to be sober-minded, pure, and kind. They are also expected to demonstrate the same Christ-like attitude of submissive humility that all Christians are called upon to exemplify in Ephesians 5.21. In other words, women who found themselves in the role of household steward should honor the gospel message by demonstrating Christ-like character. To assume this passage is prescribing the role of housekeeper to women is to misread the Greek language and take the passage out of its original context. Sadly, this is exactly what the commentators of the ESV Study Bible appear to do. In the Greek language of the New Testament, women who were already household stewards are simply instructed to be sober-minded, pure, and kind it appears the ESV Bible commentators are confusing the cultural backdrop of the Bible with the Bible's message. A fourth example of patriarchal bias can be found in the ESV Study Bible's handling of Romans 16, verse 7. The ESV translates the verse as follows, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Already there is a significant error in translation. The Greek New Testament states that Junia, a woman's name, was notable among the apostles. In other words, she herself was a notable apostle. The Greek preposition properly translated among is en. Most commonly, New Testament authors use this preposition to mean in when dealing in the singular and among when dealing in the plural looking at the new american standard version of the bible n is translated as to on exactly zero occasions in other words new testament writers including the apostle paul did not use this preposition to mean to to say that junia was well known to or more properly by the apostles paul would have likely used the preposition hoopo as he does in 1 Corinthians 8.3, which reads, But whoever loves God is known by, hupo, God. To use n to mean to or by would be completely inconsistent with his style of writing throughout his epistles. Furthermore, our oldest available Latin translation of this passage renders Junia as Juniem, a woman's name, and refers to her as Nobilis in Apostolis. Noble among the apostles. A fourth century commentary written by John Chrysostom refers to Junia the apostle in the following terms quote, Oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she should be counted worthy even to be called an apostle! End of quote. The ESV Study Bible also mentions that Junia may have been a man named Junius. There is no evidence to support this patriarchal assumption. It also claims that even if she was perhaps an apostle, as mounting evidence to dusts, this word in the case of Junia would only mean that she was a messenger, not an actual New Testament apostle with teaching and leadership authority. Sadly, the ESV commentators offer no evidence to support this claim. It seems that they simply cannot imagine Junia being an early church apostle because she was a woman. In other words, their own patriarchal bias is used to exclude her from the position assigned to her by our earliest Bible translators and commentators. Sadly, there are many more instances where the ESV Study Bible uses patriarchal language where ancient Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic manuscripts of the Bible do not. The four examples we have just examined should serve to illustrate that the ESV Study Bible confuses the human tradition of patriarchy, or the rule of men, with the will of God. Bible translators and commentators who believe that God made men to exercise authority over women wrongly perceive the Bible to be saying this, when the biblical text itself says nothing of the sort.